Hello. This is episode 9 of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dane. All changes in space which we see, hear, smell, or taste are literally tactile impressions. All our senses are variations of our unique sense of touch. Two approaching objects touch one another when they finally meet without a noticeable space between them. This is what happens in any considering matter in which the outer aspects move towards the center. Each single part of matter approaches its neighboring part until the two collide, causing an impact or a pressure. It is a space which appears and disappears between an round object and in the movements of the particles of the object. That was a quote by the founder and philosopher of the method that we're going to be discussing today on this episode of the Blood and Rain podcast. He has been described as the father of modern dance, the father of modern movement, a true visionary, and a movement expert who has transcended the practice of movement itself. His name is Rudolf von Laben. He is of French and Hungarian descent. He was born in the 1870s in Bratislava under the then Austro-Hungarian Empire to a father who was a field marshal, which is a five-star general in the Austro-Hungarian military and a French aristocratic mother. Both his parents have French descent and they came from noble and royal lineage. And with this background, he was given the funding and he was given the allowances to lead a very interesting life. Upon his 20s, he was enrolled as a cadet in a, mili- in a military academy at Wiener Neustadt, as of course his father was a military man. However, he was allowed to leave to study architecture at an architecture school in Paris, called the École de Buzau. And he studied architecture for some time, until he realized that he became fascinated with the prospect of studying architecture in Paris, less so for the practice of studying architecture itself, but for a deeper essence within. He was fascinated in the relationship between the moving human form and the space that surrounds it. He then moved to Munich, or München, for all you true German speakers, at age 30, and he began to concentrate on the movement arts. He attended a school there in the summer months of 1913 and 1914, eventually directing for the School of the Arts in Switzerland, right after in München, right before the outbreak of World War I in 1914. He then established choreographic centers in Zurich in 1915, and later branches in Italy, France, and various other places around Central Europe. His greatest achievements, however, came in the late 20s into the 30s with his publication of what is essentially called Laban Notation and the Laban Movement Analysis. These are essentially two methods of A, when it comes to Laban Movement Analysis, assessing the movements and necessary movements 
in order to map out what is optimum for the space and what is optimum for the mode of expression. And from a grand strategy standpoint, from the controls of choreography. And then there's Laban notation, which is a, is a far more internal practice. And it's essentially guiding the energy of the dancer, of the mover, and in many cases the actor and sometimes the athlete on what energy needs to be harnessed with each movement to express oneself precisely or to move accordingly to what the situation calls for. Now, this is the method that I'm truly speaking on, is Laban notation, but I'm speaking upon it in the context of what one of his students crafted this Laban notation into in British drama schools after he died in 1958. He had many students and he had many very interesting people that he kept close company with, um, one of which was an occultist that was tied to the Book of Telema, and one was actually Carl Jung, so he was deeply fascinated by the psychology and the reasoning behind movement. And if you go to any drama school, or any acting school in the United States for that matter, or any acting school in Russia, any acting school in Japan, they're all absolutely fascinated and wrapped up with understanding the relationship of people to each other, people to the space, and the collective of people relative to the space. Now, I know I'm getting very 10,000 feet, I'm getting very abstract, but I'm trying to essentially establish the background to understand how this method became so essential in so many fields, more notably in Europe, less so in the United States, even the United States drama schools and dance schools, this method is overlooked. However, in Europe, this method is used by athletes, it's used by anthropologists, it's used by businessmen, because they realize that the raw elements of this method are essential in assessing the truest essences of the people that they're dealing with and of situations at hand. Now, to give a bit of background on myself and my encounter with this method that became the most important method that I learned at drama school, I should give a brief background of my sort of progression in movement, my progression in drama school, my progression in understanding what was needed in order to properly flesh out a fully-fledged original character, or original portrayal of a character as an actor. So I had studied acting throughout high school, and actually a bit throughout middle school as well. But especially in my junior and senior year of high school, as I was um, granted into the more advanced acting classes. And we studied... Um, we studied a method called viewpoints that is really just an offshoot of Laban notation and the Laban movement analysis. And we studied briefly, very briefly, a Japanese movement method called the Suzuki method that involves a lot of stomping and a lot of linear movement for the sake of understanding the gaps in between. But then I was um, accepted after my gap year and a bit of a bit of 
body resetting study um, from a movement and acting coach that I studied with in order to audition for British drama schools in my gap year. And I was accepted to several drama schools and chose one and attended. And when I arrived there, I saw the level of the curriculum. I knew that there was going to be a very intensive curriculum as when you attend drama school, it's nothing like attending a normal university where you can say, oh, I have, I have general education classes, I have mathematics on Tuesday and Thursday, and I have biology on Wednesday and Friday. I have one class on Monday, and then afterwards I can drink or party, and then I can go see this, or I can, you know, I can get an early night, or whatever. There's a lot less flexibility with drama school. Drama school is three years. It's very intensive. You're in the studio nine to six every weekday. You do oftentimes come on the weekends and book studio time to work on projects. And there are some cases as you approach finals within each term, you know, you're in the four weeks left towards finals, that you're in the studio from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. So it's very intensive work. You have to work incredibly hard to create an instrument that can essentially do everything that you need as a working actor, whether that be a more movement-intensive play, whether that be a Shakespeare play, so you need to have a solid grasp of script study and scene study and understanding the text and understanding what the text calls for in terms of what is my role as a first mover, as a catalyst in the scene, and what is my role as a listener and a reactor to the other person or people that I'm dealing with on stage. So it's an incredible amount of work. Um, In Russia, it takes about six years to become an actor. When you go through full acting training, especially connected to any schools tied to the Moscow Art Theater, where Anton Chekhov and Maxim Gorky, and in some cases Henrik Ibsen, all the great what were called the psychological realists, debuted many of their plays to much acclaim. In Japan, it takes five years just to study Eastern theater, let alone practice it. So, to become an actor in the English-speaking world in three years takes just an intense amount of dedication and really sacrificing a bunch of aspects of your life. The three years, though, are a bit of a gradient. The first year is all training. It is nothing but training. With some practical performances to execute the training that you've received and practiced divided into three terms, you'll have some performances in front of tutors or teachers at the end of each term, but with no actual audience. Then the second year is you still have some training, but it's more training applied more and more towards performance. And then the third year is all performances. You do sometimes up to six performances of plays and musicals and scenes and workshops and things like that. And then the end of it is showcase. So you prepare a monologue and you prepare a scene with just one other person. So there's typically an even amount of people in the classes. Some classes are as large as 32, depending on the drama school. Some are 28, some are 20, and some are as low as 16. So it's always an even number, so you have one person to do a scene with for your showcase at the end of your third year, and you do this in front of agents. You're basically saying, hello, this is blank drama school's class of blank whatever year. These are the actors we've trained. 
These are the people who we are now deeming ready to go into the industry. And we think they could do wonders on your books in your agency. And we think they're very castable. And we've assigned or we've described to them their casting both in the immediate next five years and several decades down the line. So it's getting to that point of showcase. Everything leads to showcase, including the performances at the end of third year. But that first year is very much from the ground up. It's a lot of unlearning everything you've already learned. It's a lot of... Honestly, a lot of destruction, as destruction is part of creation. The goal is to be as neutral as possible. Now, what does that mean? That means destroying everything that's too unique. For instance, I had very long hair. I had hair past my shoulders. They said, in this mode of training, we need you to cut your hair because your hair isn't neutral enough. They see parts of your personality that are a little too unique, or a little too extreme. And they try to soften those for a time in order for you to become a home note center. So, for example, it's much easier for you to go from center to the closest northern point, or the closest southern point, or closest easternmost point, or closest westernmost point, as opposed to going from Let's say your personality was at the furthest south point and you need to travel to the furthest north point. It's easier to play a wider range of characters and a wider range of essences from a neutral center. So this is the practice. You wore all black every day in school. In between classes as well. Because you were developing this blank canvas state. So it's a state I've described... Several times on my Instagram page, I, I described it on Evil Academy's Evil Cast, is that this state is can be a bit detrimental, to be honest, if you're a little too young and you're not you don't have a full grasp on who you are yet. So this can be this can cause a bit of psychological damage, to be abundantly honest. And this used to be a much more extreme practice, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, because in the United Kingdom. In the 1930s, the BBC radio started to become more established. However, the UK even now, but especially back then, you had a wide range of accents. So, the person up north in Newcastle had a completely different accent to the person in the southwest from Cornwall. And it'd be very difficult for them to understand. So they created a neutral accent, which is called received, pronunci received pronunciation, which is abbreviated as RP. And this accent was a softened version of the very noble, royal, regal accent that was the accent of the royal court, of the royal family. And so, you'll see today that there are people who grew up in, you know, places with very distinct accents, but they have this RP accent because they come from wealth, and they come from this classist belief within the United Kingdom. But this accent is also used as a standard for British theatre. So Sir Ian McKellen went to drama school in London, but he was from the north, but he was going to drama school at a time where when you got to school, you weren't allowed to speak in your native accent. You weren't allowed to speak in a Cornwall accent, uh, a Nottingham accent, a Manchester accent, uh, and a Scottish accent. You were, ha you were supposed to speak in RP at school every single day, not just in the actual classes. And Sir Ian McKellen, I, I forget which northern accent that he had, 
but he completely lost it. And he felt that he lost a big part of himself. And he, he felt that was deeply detrimental. So the accent bit, I believe in all drama schools now, has been eliminated. However, in drama school, there's still this practice of becoming neutral. There's this practice of being a blank canvas that is essential in becoming a fully-fledged, trained actor who can assess any situation, assess any casting call, and adjust themselves accordingly to what is required in essence, in movement, in speech, in energy, in words, and actions to get hired, to get a job, essentially. So, what does this look like in terms of being a neutral blank canvas and then receiving training? Well, when you're a blank canvas, then you can take in the tools that are used to train much better because you're not adding them on your home note self, you're adding them on a blank canvas, so they're much more clear to understand and they're much more clear to value and they're much more clear to utilize. This comes in the form of vocal training, as in training your voice for speech. This comes in the form of singing training for some specialties. This comes in the form of movement training, of dance, of acting theory in terms of studying scripts. It comes in a method called actioning that I have somewhat of a beef with, and many actors have somewhat of a beef with. Actioning basically meaning, in that line, what action are you doing with that line? You'll have a lot of really action-heavy coaches. What's your action? What's your action? You're not being clear. What's your action for this line? And that's fine. For example, I am consoling this person with this line. I'm saying, it's going to be okay. Everything's fine. You know, there's nothing that you've done that can be that can't be taken back, so I'm I'm consoling. Another one could be Henry V. Once more to the breach, my dear friends, once more. He's giving the speech to rile up the to rouse the troops into action. So that action could be to motivate to all the people he's giving this speech. Now, the problem with that method in particular, and I'll move on quickly because we're supposed to get to a specific method that I do believe will be very helpful to many of you in life. But the problem with that actioning method is it can be too rigid. And some, some directors will have you literally sit down at a table and they'll have you action every single line throughout the script. But that becomes very rigid and unorganic. And I've noticed that sometimes... There are certain plays and certain musicals that call for a state without action. There are characters who are in a state of uncertainty as to what it is that they want, and they're in a state of confusion, so there is a, there's an intentional lack of clarity that actioning can't dwell in. So every, every, the, even that method had its limits. There were methods... That we used of characteristics, so we had an exercise where, this, this isn't the first term, there are three terms per year, and they assigned us a characteristic, and we were supposed to do a report on that characteristic, an adjective. Um, they gave mine, which almost took a little bit of a, a slight to, they gave mine as sophisticated, being the American in the class, and I gave a report on sophistication. And I gave some examples of true sophistication, and I gave some examples of sophistication gone wrong. 
And then I was supposed to do a scene with another person who had, a, who had another characteristic. And we were both supposed to very aggressively and staunchly hold on to that characteristic in that space, in that scene. And this became more advanced in the second term. We were asked to describe our home note selves. This is one of the few times that our home note selves, our true selves, we were supposed to describe in five characteristics. So I did so. And then they gave us a characteristic they felt was opposite to ourselves. And I was given simple. Um, but as I noticed, the, the, the point is, the point of all of this, the, point, the reason why I'm giving all this background, these two terms before the third term were roughly, they were seven months in duration total. And I noticed, I began to notice something, and this also was this, this is the same time that I began training Muay Thai, and this is the same time that my writing was deepening, and I was learning much more about the world, and I was re- honestly finishing growing up. I finished growing up in England, not in the Bay Area. And I was beginning to notice that there was something deeper within all of these methods, it's something that I spoke about in the very first podcast. It's something that I speak about ad nauseum, and that's core essences. The rawest, deepest rudiment. Musashi talked about this. He talked about mastering. When you master the movements, you master the applications, you begin to cut deeper and deeper and deeper to understand their essence, their energies. And we arrived the third term, drama school after a break, an Easter break. And we were introduced to the Laban movement method. Now, Rudolf Laban, I gave you a background at the beginning. It's very dance heavy. And it goes into a lot of detail and mapping out movements that I'm not going to get into. I'm just going to get into this variation of one of his students that is used primarily for actors more so than dancers. But it has to do with the aspect of Rudolf Laban's system that involves a word called effort. For example, the effort in which one extends their arm in anger to strike someone with a punch is different in, than the effort it takes for someone to extend their arm to grab a cup of tea that's just, just out of reach. It's the same movement but a different effort. It's the same movement but with a different energy. And he was, chore- he was choreographing someone and they extended their arm, and he says, no, 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 don't, 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 don't glide your arm, slash your arm. And he started to realize that each movement had one of eight efforts with one separate yes-no question attached to it. And these are essentially eight core energies. These are eight core essences. And these are understood and analyzed and assessed by answering the first three A or B questions. For each respective energy, is the energy strong or light, quick or sustained, direct or indirect? Now, this manifests in becoming one of these eight energies. You have the punch, You have the press, you have the slash, you have the ring, you have the glide, my apologies, you have the dab, you have the glide, 
you have the float, and you have the flick. Now, each of these eight are one or two offshoots from each other. For example, the punch is strong, it's quick, and it's direct. The press is strong, it's sustained, and it's direct. The slash, it's strong, it's quick, and it's indirect. Then you have the ring, which is strong, sustained, and indirect. Then you get into the lighter efforts. You have the dab, which is light, quick, and direct. You have the glide, which is the light, the sustained, and the direct. You have the flick, which is the light, the quick, and the indirect. And then you have the float, which is the light, the sustained, and the indirect. Now, as you can see, I know I'm throwing a lot of things out there, and I'm actually going to post this podcast with a chart, so it's very clear and simple for you to understand, and you can see it from a visual standpoint. But each of these energies are a home note energy. Now, this is highly beneficial for an actor, not just a dancer, because you can start to figure out, as you read the character, which home note energy this person has. Now, situationally, and you'll see this many a time with people in life, they come from a certain aggressive environment, they come from a certain... They come from an environment that calls for a different effort. For the sake of survival, or the sake of gain, or the sake of understanding, or for the sake of fitting in. But when they go home, and they're alone, the home note effort always comes back. The home note energy always comes back. For example, one of my classmates came from a very rough part of London. And we noticed that there were some people who were straddling certain efforts, and the reason why she was straddling the border of certain efforts, certain energies, rather, was because of the situation and environment that they came from that sort of stuck with them. It became this coping mechanism, but it wasn't their true effort. It wasn't their true energy. So really, she was more sustained. She was actually a press, which is strong, sustained, and direct. But for the sake of growing up in this bad neighborhood, she had to be quicker. So, she had to dip into a punch a lot. So, she had to switch that sustained element into a quick element for the sake of survival. She had to punch for the sake of survival. She had to punch to survive in North London. She had to punch to not be talked over. She had to punch with her energy, and probably punch quite literally, in order to stay alive. But once again, we diagnosed the fact that really, your home note is a press. When there's no situation calling for something else, when there's no character you're playing that calls for a different energy, this is your home note. It's a press. Now, we did an exercise. We went around the room. We played this fun little game. First, we physicalized every movement. So, you saw people punching, you saw people kicking. That's essentially another form of a punch. You saw people pressing against the wall. 
You saw people slashing, almost like they're homeless people strung out on drugs, screaming at the top of their lungs in the, in the San Francisco Tenderloin or, or Bayview or a bad neighborhood of New York City or Chicago or whatnot. So I'm slashing up in the air, throwing their hands up in the air and screaming. You saw people wringing, they're wringing their hands together, like they're wringing out a towel. You saw people dabbing, so they're sort of like coming up to their friends and poking their arms, I'm dabbing. You saw people flicking, some people flicking with their arms, so it's like the lighter version of a slash. So instead of slashing their arms into the space, slashing their arms in anger, they're using the same movement but with a much lighter effort, almost telling people, oh, it's fine, it's fine. I don't care. I'm flicking it away. I'm flicking away. I'm flicking away any responsibilities I have. I'm flicking away any troubles. And you saw people very elegantly gliding. You saw people sauntering through the space. You saw men who were gliding almost have this very politician stance. This very everything's going to be okay because I have a plan stance. There's no reason to be alarmed. You saw women acting... In their most elegant state, gliding around the room. And then you saw people floating. You saw people truly... Not necessarily free, because that's the fourth effort that I'll get into later. But you saw people sort of wandering in these figure eights. It always came in the form of a figure eight. They're floating. They're floating into infinity. They're letting life's essence take them and... I realize this now, I realize this now that the fact that they're floating in the form of a figure eight, meaning floating, it's indirect, it's sustained, and it's light. It's the most formless of them, but the infinity, the sacred geometry was the, the movement that came most notably with floating in terms of, in terms of walking pattern, in terms of movement pattern of this floating. And we were all in a play at the time. And we were asked to pick one of our lines and perform the line in all eight efforts. And we figured out which effort was the most difficult for us, which one we just didn't like, which one wasn't one that we enjoyed doing. And then we all sat down and we went around the room and we said, okay, what's this person? What, what, what home note is this person? What home note is this person? And we went around and like, oh, I'm not sure. Well, and then people say, well, you do kind of act like this, and you do, you do do this. And some amazing patterns emerged. You had some of these tough guys, you know, from South London, from rough parts of Manchester and Newcastle. And you're sort of tough guys. They're thinking, oh, I'm a strong effort. I'm a punch. I'm a, I'm a press. I'm a slash. And they said, no, you're a dab and you're a flick. And you heard, I'm a dab. I'm a flick. And they said, yeah, that doesn't change the fact that you're tough. But your home run energies are light. And they had trouble gripping that. And they're like, but what about all these, all these tough characters? And I'm like, well, there are some truly harrowing characters that work in these light efforts. P perfect example, Hannibal Lecter. He was afloat. Hello, Clarice. It's this floating effort that commands respect. It's a floating effort that commands fear. It's a floating effort that confuses and unnerves. 
I just posted a picture on the latest masculine schmood board for Blood and Rain. And the third picture is a cowboy. Some people asked who it was. And it's in the remake of Three Tents of Yuma from 2006 starring Christian Bale and Russell Crowe. It's from a then-surging actor named uh, Ben Foster. And he played the right-hand man to Russell Crowe's bandits. And Charlie Prince. And he has this line. He's just an absolute killer. But he's afloat. And it's terrifying. Soto finds these... They come across these people. This group of people. This potential rival gang of bandits. And he says, Are you some kind of posse? And they said, Well, yeah. And then he shoots all of them right then and there before they can do anything. And he takes a pause and he says... I hate posses. So the effort energy you have has nothing to do with... It, it can, as I said, when you dip into more situational efforts that aren't your true home note. But true home note efforts have nothing to do with what you're capable of, whether good or bad as a human being. And what was very interesting as we went around and assessed the efforts... Of each of our classmates. There were a lot of times that people were in denial. Let's say this girl's name was Jane. And she said, Jane said, oh, I don't know. I don't know what I am. And they're like, Jane, you're afloat. You kept floating around the room. And like, no, I'm strong. And they were just looking at her trying to throw a fit. But her, her effort was just so floaty. And she realized that like, and as she was describing, she made a figure eight, very floating figure eight with her hand. It says, look, the way you move is afloat. The way you're speaking right now with your hand is afloat. And we got to one person says, I don't know, I think I kind of, you know, straddled two efforts and she was speaking with a slashing hand. Like, no. (laughs) No, Jessica, you're a slash. Look at what you're doing with your hand right now. So all these people, as we assessed their energies, when we kept asking these three questions, okay, is your light strong or light? They said, this particular person, oh no, that person's effort is strong, okay? Is it quick or sustained? Ah, we've seen you be quick before, but when we see you just on your own, you're very sustained. And are you direct or indirect? It's like, mm, you're, you're indirect. And in the ones that straddled, and in the ones that had a bit of uncertainty, the physical movement they were making without realizing it, was indeed their true home note effort. It got to me, and they said, what's Arthur? And I honestly didn't know. And the teacher said, look at Arthur's hands. And I was wringing my hands. You can even hear it in the way that I speak. They asked, what's Arthur's home note? Definitely strong. And I knew that from being my classmate for some time. And they said, well, what's Arthur's speed? Oh, he's definitely sustained because he does things in his own time. Um, and what's his, what's his effort? And they says, well, he's a bit cryptic, isn't he? And I was like, oh, I wouldn't know if I call myself cryptic, but sure. They said, no, you're indirect. You're not always direct. And they said, I'm a ring. And I was like, are you sure? And as this was happening, I was wringing my hands. Now, this started to allude to the fact that I was typecast in a lot of things. I get cast as a lot. Well, this, I'm no longer an actor, but... And that might change some point in the future, but I don't know. 
But the characters I was always cast in, I was always cast as a villain or an anti-hero or someone going through some serious inner turmoil. But there was also an energy abundance. Now, then the, the, the teacher asked, who has the greatest abundance of total energy? And it came down to myself and the aforementioned girl from North London. And they said, so there's varying degrees of amount of energy people can harness. Which I found fascinating. And that's another frontier in and itself that I won't fully get into. But why do I mention this now? There are so many... You, you can see a thousand startups right now. You can see a thousand tests and a thousand sort of self-help books talking about assessing people. And a lot of them have too many details... And a lot of them have too many inconsistencies, or th some things are too rigid. You saw in my initial post, if you read it on Instagram, that I was semi-ripping on Myers-Briggs, because people take one quiz, and they take another quiz, and then given on one day, they can answer a question of this severity, they can answer another question of this severity. Things can change with time. Those qualities can change with time, but the energy, a person's home note energy always remains the same. You just have to ask yourself three questions. Is my energy strong or is it light? Is my energy quick or sustained? Is my energy direct or indirect? Then you can know yourself. And you can know the people around you. You can know how to understand a person... And you, know, you can know how to speak to them accordingly. You can know how to appease a person. You can know how to motivate a person. You can know how to defend yourself against a person with malicious intent. It can be very evil to manipulate people with this, however. And I would highly advise against it. As I've seen people attempt. And I've seen it blown up in their face. But to understand ourselves and to understand others is to raise our consciousness. Is to therefore have another effort towards winning the war of consciousness. Many things now that are sort of tied to this hyper-woke culture were originally born in we shouldn't bully and we shouldn't offend people. And I think that for the most part, that, that rudiment in itself alone not tied to any of the asinine culture we see today and asinine restrictions and asinine PC nonsense. None of that is welcome, but that initial saying, I'd rather not offend and I'd rather not cause harm. Well, how can we do that? We can better understand the people around us. And we can also better understand ourselves and therefore we can consciously assess the actions and the words that need to be taken and spoken, respectively, in order to raise relationships, in order to diffuse situations, in order to rouse people into action who are uninspired and downtrodden. There's so many things that once you assess a person's energy, you know what energy you need to exhibit accordingly. You know how to speak to them. You know how to get through to them. You know how to heal them. So, I would take the time on this fine Sunday 
Assess your home note energy. Assess some of your loved ones' home note energies. And also take a look at your physicality. Take a look at your speech patterns. Take a look how it in, it embodies your everyday life. Take a look at the actions and speech of your loved ones. My mother's a slash. My father's a punch. And I'm a ring. You can imagine how type A that household was. And better understand, the initial process is fun. And it should be. So let it be fun. And then start to think about how can my using this better affect the world? How can I make a positive impact on my immediate world by better understanding, being more conscious of myself and others? And what are the actions? What are the actions of helping my fellow man look like by assessing their energy and assessing what can help them? I hope you all have a fine Sunday. Hope you have a fine day of the sun, a fine holy day. Surrounded by loved ones. That was actually my mother calling. These synchronicities lately are abundant indeed. But I hope you're surrounded by loved ones. I hope you take the time to pray, to meditate. To better understand yourself. And to better understand those around you. And how to help the consciousness around you rise. There are a number of things going on uh, in the near future with Blood and Rain. Today I'm going to be recording a podcast with a name many of you know. Probably all of you know, Forrest Munden. Very much looking forward to it. I spoke to several of you and I posted an Instagram story regarding a separate website for long-form content, as long-form content appears to be the most in-demand written content, thankfully. I am working on a joint piece that will be the debut piece for that website, a piece with another content creator in the sphere, one of the most talented writers in the sphere, so that'll be the debut piece, I'm very much looking forward to that. There are podcasts planned now until July 4th, so that July 4th episode will be the second half of the podcast for this year, that will be episode 41. In addition to being guests on several other podcasts that I will announce in the near future. And many of you are coming to me asking for actionable advice, which is why I posted some more actionable things on the Blood and Rain Instagram, which is why today's podcast is far more actionable than most. But another thing that I am going to be partaking in is something that some of you have seen on my Instagram story recently. Another fantastic content creator uh, called Primal Thrive and I are joining our expertise for a trial run for a men's group. Now this group is over the course of four weekends in March and it's combining his expertise of testosterone boosting, biohacking in the realm of Connecting every synapse together to spark quicker, hair growth, wellness, but the primary practice being testosterone boosting, and combining my expertise in strength and conditioning 
long-term strength and conditioning programming, hypertrophy, and mental toughness cultivation, as well as philosophy. But more so than anything, I'm excited to be doing a men's group, a direct contact group where we'll speak with one another uh, once every weekend in March, uh, grow in brotherhood, and help grow each other through knowledge. So for those of you who are interested, feel free to shoot me a direct message on Instagram about that as well. So there's a lot of things in the works, but I want to stress enough, take the most time today to enjoy this Sunday, to be conscious on this Sunday, be conscious with your loved ones, and meditate on living a more conscious life to win this war on consciousness that I will not stop speaking of because this is the war of our generation. So until next time, good day and good storms. Thank you.